0: Well, friends, if you have your Bibles, would you open with me first to Romans chapter 3? And if you have a a Bible ribbon or a bookmark or something like that, you may want to tuck that into Zechariah chapter 3 at the same time as we take a look at both of these texts together this evening. As you're turning there, let me just say a few words by way of introduction as we continue our series in the golden chain tonight, borrowing that lovely title from William Perkins. It's a study of the blessed surety of our salvation. That's what it is. The blessed surety of our salvation as it comes from the hand of Almighty God. That's what the golden chain is. And one of the things that we've highlighted is that as we read through the Bible and we come across these terms like justification and sanctification and adoption and election, is that the order of salvation or the ordo salutis, it's like a bookshelf. It's as if there's a bunch of scattered books all over the floor, and they're all true and they're all good and they're all useful but they're just terribly disorganized and the ordo comes along like a bookshelf and it gives us some structure. It gives us a frame of reference by which we can understand these teachings and neatly organizes those books on the shelves properly so that they make better sense to us as we come to approach them in Holy Scripture. So we've already looked through union with Christ and election and effectual calling and regeneration and then faith and this morning repentance. And tonight we're thinking about the work of God for us and outside of us in the courtroom of heaven, before the holy bar of eternity. We'll consider two scripture passages tonight, as as I say, as we study this immensely important doctrine in one short sermon, trying to present a, a sort of summary of it. Romans 3 is where justification is defined for us, but then we'll also read that beautiful Old Testament passage from Zechariah 3, where we see justification illustrated and then we'll spend some time thinking about some practical applications and implications that the doctrine of justification has for our lives. Uh, one sermon that I listened to a number of years ago, I took this kind of outline approach and I found it very helpful, so I thought we would do likewise this evening. One of the things that I hope for this series to accomplish is to help all of us see that theology is not just for theologians. That doctrine and the study of things like justification is not just for scholars and academics and eggheads and seminary nerds like myself, but that it is for you. It's for all of God's people everywhere. If you are a believer in Jesus, this theology is for you. It will nourish your soul. It will gird your conscience. It will assuage your fear. And it will give you fuel and drive to press on. It will make you see and understand and want, God willing, want to worship your God and Savior all the more. This is doctrine for life, and I hope that that's how we see it as we study through it in these weeks together. So let's look first to Romans three, and then we'll look at Zechariah chapter three. After that, we'll read God's word first, and then we'll pray and ask for His help and blessing as we study His word tonight. So Romans three, we're going to read verses ten through twenty-six. Remember the background. Paul, in the letter to the Romans, he's just giving this devastating synopsis, this devastating diagnosis of all human condition. Let's pick up at chapter 3, verse 10. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, In Jesus. Thus far, Romans 3. Now, if you would please turn with me to Zechariah chapter 3. Zechariah chapter 3. Romans 3 is one of those places where justification is explained, and Zechariah chapter 3 is one of those great places where it is illustrated. So let's look at Zechariah 3, and we'll read verses 1 through 5. This is God's holy word again. Hear it. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing in his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments, and the angel of the Lord was standing by. Amen. Thus far, God's holy and inerrant and inspired word to us tonight. May he write its eternal truth in all of our hearts. Would you pray with me again, please, friends? O Lord, truly, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, our rock and our redeemer. We ask that you would grant us your Holy Spirit's illumination and his ministry and his help as we study this, your holy word, our daily bread, this night. We ask it all for Jesus' sake. Amen. John Calvin famously wrote that justification is the main hinge on which religion turns. A number of you have probably heard that quote before probably many times. And Martin Luther said likewise that justification is the article by which the church stands and falls. Calvin said justification is the main hinge on which religion turns. And Luther said justification is the article by which the church stands and falls. We are dealing tonight, friends, with foundationally, fundamentally important doctrines. Those forefathers in the faith would go so far as to say that justification is a a hinge that moves the door of salvation and even holds the door sufficiently and appropriately open. Enter the gate by the narrow way, that's what our Lord Jesus said. And we in the church have understood that it is by justification that that gate is entered. And so if what Luther says is true, and justification is the pillar by which the church stands or falls then it follows, logically, that any church that moves away from justification by faith alone no longer remains a true biblical church. We would go so far as to say, I trust, that if you get justification wrong, we get the gospel wrong, and therefore we get Christianity wrong. Ever since Genesis chapter 3, this has been the fundamental problem of humanity, has it not? People are sinners. Sinners are not in a right standing before Almighty God. That's been the fundamental problem since the dawn of time. And so then, the the great burden of Holy Scripture from Genesis 3 all the way to the end of Revelation is quite simply to explore how does a man, how does a woman, how does a child get in a right standing with God, the Creator, against, he has, against whom He has so frequently and grievously sinned. In Eden... Adam and Eve were in a right standing with God, before God, prior to Genesis 3. Now he's not. Man is not. He is in a state of death, of sin and misery, as to use the language of our catechism. And scripture's answer from Genesis to Revelation is, here is what our Lord has done. Here is what our God has done to get his people back into a right standing before him. Blessed be his glorious name forever. That's the great... Burden is, look, man is out of a right standing before God on account of his sin. And then, of course, the other half of that great burden, the other half of that coin, the flip side, if you like, of Scripture is, look what God has done to get his people back into that right standing. Blessed be his name. Justification is the next link in the golden chain. God has elected his people in eternity, he has set his affection upon them. And at some point, brothers and sisters, you heard the gospel. And God used that means of gospel hearing to effectually call you, to draw you to himself. And thus you were given a new heart. By the sovereign work of God, the Holy Spirit, you were born again. You were regenerated. And upon having that new heart and upon having those new desires, you desired Christ and you embraced him. You trusted him. You responded in faith and repentance. And this this regenerated heart now prompted you to hate sin. And so you, you turned from it and you turned toward Christ and, and you are ever doing so all the days of your life as a Christian as we talked about, as we spoke about this morning. The entire life of believers should be one of repentance, Luther said. Faith and repentance. And so now, the next link in the chain, what happens next when one is given a new heart? When they come to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, that is, this man, this woman, this child, once, a, once a, a rebel, God-hating outcast, now they are inevitably in the glorious, blessedly beautiful and splendid logic of salvation. They are now justified. They are righteous. They're in a right standing before God, their maker. And so the first thing that I want for us to see tonight as we take in from both of these passages is I want us to see justification defined justification defined, particularly from Romans 3. In Romans 3, we saw the Apostle Paul trace out that logic. Damning consequences, isn't it? It says he takes in the whole inventory of all humanity and nothing is outside his scope. As the Apostle Paul traces out the logic, as he traces out the consequences for us, you look at Romans 3 verse 10, there's no one righteous, not even one. Every mouth is silenced. Even our very best attempts at self-defense, they fall absolutely flat before the demands of God's purity and his holiness. He says there down in verse 20, for by the works of the law, no one, no human being, no man will be justified in God's sight. There's nothing we can do to obtain for ourselves a righteousness in the sight of God. And that becomes the great problem that faces all of us. How can I find the righteousness that God demands of me? He demands righteousness. I need righteousness. I can't stand before him without it. How do I get it? Where am I to turn for the righteous verdict, lest I be utterly condemned? The answer Paul gives us there in Romans 3.21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Paul is telling us there is another righteousness, one that does not originate with our law-keeping, yes? One that belongs to God and one that does not belong to us. We receive it by grace as a gift, he says, through faith, verses 24 and 25. Not faith in a, in a some sort of strange, mystical vagueness. You no, know, Again, it's, it's one of those phrases that we have to extract from popular cultural usage. We hear that phrase all the time, I have faith. I have faith that we'll, it will all work out. I have faith that you know, the weather will cooperate tomorrow. I have faith that the, the plans that I make should go swimmingly. Well, that's, that's all lovely sounding, but on what basis? No, faith, biblically understood, always has an object. It's not a vague, mystical conjecture. It always takes it for itself an object. And namely, hallelujah, that object is Jesus Christ. Thus, verse 24 God set forth Jesus as a propitiation by his blood. Propitiation is that glorious technical term, it means a sacrifice that satisfies the demands of God's righteous wrath against our sin. It's a big word. It's a, a technical theological term, but it's a glorious one, is it not? Propitiation means it's a sacrifice that appeases and turns away wrath. A sacrifice that appeases and turns away wrath. Jesus Christ has made complete satisfaction so that, as Paul will say in the opening lines there in Romans chapter 8, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And so Paul goes on to say here in Romans 3 verse 26, by means of the cross god has found a way to be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in jesus this this ungodly wicked sinner who has no righteousness of his own this heart that is full of nothing but sin from the moment of conception unto my birth unto all my life lived apart from christ this wicked sinner who has no righteousness of his own full of greed and malice, full of avarice and sin. Nevertheless, this heart, this soul, this man is counted righteous and God's justice is in no way undermined. Not a lick of it, not a jot or tittle of his justice is undermined or winked at or swept under the rug or ignored. There is no shortcut. There is no fudging of the numbers in the holy accounting of God's justice in the courts of his holy righteousness. How can it be How can it be that this sinner has all of his sins dealt with to the full, and yet I still stand? I'm not obliterated where I stand on account of my sin and filth. How can it be? It's because at the cross, justice was satisfied, and Christ's righteousness is reckoned to us and to our account. We see that as we look now to Zechariah chapter 3. So first, we see justification defined. Ever so briefly, we could spend semesters on a doctrine like this, surely. But first we see justification defined, as it is logically, doctrinally so, from the pen of the Apostle Paul in Romans 3. But then the second thing that I want for us to see tonight is justification illustrated. Justification illustrated from Zechariah chapter 3. So as we look look back to that Old Testament passage, we see here that the prophet, Zechariah, has a vision. It's a vision of the high priest, and Satan is accusing him. But the angel of the Lord makes an appearance on this scene. And by the way, many theologians, many scholars believe that more often than not, when you see the angel of the Lord make an appearance in the scripture, it's usually, probably, a pre-incarnate form of the second person of the Trinity, whom we call the Lord Jesus Christ, a pre-incarnate Christ. And if that's the case, and I tend to think that it is, how fitting is it then, how splendidly fitting that the angel of the Lord being the pre-incarnate second person of the Trinity, defends the high priest against the accuser in this scene and he rebukes Satan's mouth. However, there's a problem, isn't there? That Joshua is robed and he's clothed in filthy garments. He's dressed in stained and dirty robes. Because of this, because of this present reality in the moment, Satan's accusations would hold true. Well, why? Understand that in the imagery and in the symbolism of the Old Testament, the robes of the high priest were a powerful visual symbol. They were to be white, symbolizing, of course, holiness and purity before the Lord. But here he stands, Joshua the high priest, as representative of his people, of the people of Israel, before God, as he's supposed to be representing holiness. Here he is standing before the very presence of God Almighty, and his clothing covered in filth. Some commentators will note here that the language suggests that his robes are covered in excrement, perhaps language even more colorful than that. But you get the image. The point is, how unthinkable. How unthinkable. Imagine, imagine showing up to court or going before the queen. Well, she's passed away now, so now the king, the king of the United Kingdom, wearing your best suit, your best duds, the best thing you have in your wardrobe, and you walk into the throne room but only to find out that it is smothered and smeared with the defecation from your family dog when you took him to the bathroom this morning. The picture and the symbolism is obvious. You put your own robes, you put your own best suit on to to appear before the king, the Lord. It's laughable, and it's obvious. You can't cover up the filth, the excrement. You put on your best You put on the best thing you can possibly dredge out from your wardrobe and even your best, even your best, is still covered and smeared with foul, odious, putrid filth. The high priest cannot stand before God like that. It's a picture, friends, of sin. And remember, the high priest is meant to represent before the people, or he's meant meant to represent the people before God. And so this filthy sin is vividly pictured on his clothing. It's representative of all the sin of all the people of God. Satan's accusations here as he utters them are absolutely on target, 100% correct. He doesn't need to lie. He doesn't need to make things up in this instant. Satan, you see, just needs to stand there, point at Joshua, point at you, point at me, and say, take a look. It's all over him. Look at this vile sinner. Can't you see it? He doesn't have to exaggerate the truth. He doesn't have to have an imagination. He just needs to stand there and point at us. And we stare at our feet. And embarrassment and shame. It's all true. Every ounce of it. What he says is right, Lord. But look what happens next. The angel commands his servants to remove the filthy garments from Joshua. And he says, behold, I've taken your iniquity away and I will clothe you with pure vestments. You see that there in verse 4? The filthy garments are taken away and clean robes are given instead. He takes away Joshua's iniquity and he clothes him with righteousness. There's the great exchange. Now it's not, it's not spelled out here with a kind of doctrinal technicality that we've come to enjoy and that we expect from Romans chapter 3. But it is here at the picture of the great exchange nevertheless. Jesus Christ, the angel of the Lord, takes the filthy garments. And this same one, we know, from the New Testament, is made to bear the penalty of sin. Satan, as he stands there with his accusing finger, he demands punishment. Look, God, your people are full of sin. What are you going to do about it? And the father pronounces the guilty verdict. And the sentence of justice rolls down. But it doesn't fall on us. Praise God. It falls on Christ. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Remember the prodigal son as we alluded to him this morning? When the son returns, what's the father do as he comes home? He robes him. He's there and he's he's covered in the shame and the iniquity and the sin of his wantonly wasted years the embarrassment of having to look his father in the eye for all he did to squander what his father had given him. He's bent down in the shame of his own sin and his selfishness and greed. And What's the father do? The father orders his own finest robe to cover over all that sin, or all that stain, all that filth, all that stench that surely must have come from him. Cover him in my best. Prepare the fatted calf. Get the feast ready for this son of mine who once was lost has now been found. And Zechariah's vision here is saying to us that this is what God does for his people. It's what he always does for his people. And what was concealed in type and image and shadow in the Old Testament, what was in the old concealed, you know the old phrase, what was in the old concealed is now in the new revealed. What was in the old concealed is now in the New Testament made clear, made manifest in gospel pristine clarity. This is what God has done for you. He looks at you, his child, and he says, away with your filth. Away with your condemnation, away with your damnation, away with the foul pollutant of sin, away with guilt. Take it all off of him and put it, put it all, put all of his sin, put all of her sin and put it on my son. My son, who has only ever known the fellowship and the company and the delight of the ever-blessed Trinity. My son my obedient son, my righteous servant, the holy Messiah. Take his filth. Take her iniquity. Put it all on him. The death that he deserves, the death that she deserves, give it to him. Let him be damned in her place. My sin for his righteousness, the great exchange. Justified. Justified, God says. And let the accuser's mouth be silenced forever. So justification defined, and then justification illustrated, and then finally, let's think for a few minutes about justification implicated. Some applications, some applications or some implications of this glorious truth. Justification is one of those doctrines that's precious to us, is it not? Especially if you've been around Reformed churches for a long time. We talk a lot about justification, and rightly so. It's a beautiful doctrine. It's one that comforts our souls and stills our fears and one which makes our hearts to swell with glad adoration and worship, especially once we come to understand it for the first time. But at the same time, it's a doctrine that because we talk about it so much, because we study it and discuss it so much, it can become familiar to us, perhaps overly familiar, such that the awe goes away. We sometimes run the risk of moving from amazing grace to accustomed grace, We can do that with the doctrine of justification. So let's try to look at some things from maybe a fresh angle that this doctrine would not become mere accustomed grace to us, but that it would always be amazing grace. And so the first thing I want for us to think about, just to piggyback right off what I just mentioned, we can use, brothers and sisters, we can use the doctrine of justification to silence Satan's assaults. Never, 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 never forget that we are in real spiritual warfare. We talked about that earlier this year when we were in Ephesians chapter 6. Sometimes we Presbyterian and Reformed types tend to downplay that for fear of getting labeled perhaps as as Pentecostals or Charismatics. They take things to excess, we, we, we understand, and so therefore we just sort of play down the reality of spiritual warfare, play down the reality of demonic activity because we don't want to sound excessive like those folks. But it's true, demonic ministrations and spiritual warfare is very real. And if we were to go around this room tonight and have a show of hands, I wonder how many would raise their hand if we posed the question, how many of you have felt under real spiritual attack this past week or this past month? How many of you have felt the wiles of Satan's schemes laboring against you? I bet you the numbers would surprise you. But Ephesians 2, as I say, makes it clear that there are principalities and powers. There are demonic powers that are seeking to undermine and frustrate the gospel ministries of Christ's church. But the thing is, Spiritual warfare doesn't often look like spiritual warfare, right? We're not out in the church parking lot fighting demons with angelic lightning bolts, with some sort of sky-zapping enemy forces. That's not what happens. Spiritual warfare often comes in far more ordinary, earthy, pedestrian ways. Satan, for instance, hates your compassion. Satan hates your encouraging one another. He hates your kindness, he hates your hospitality, he hates your prayers, and so he will seek to weary us in well-doing. He will accuse us of our failures, he will call them to mind, those failures to love and serve as we ought. He will remind us of our own frailties, he will make us despair of our worthiness, he will attempt to divide us. And when we are tired, we are often more weak and vulnerable. Don't we know that? And he will absolutely seek to exploit us when we are at our weakest. Think of where we are in terms of a a wider society. People are worried. What in the world is happening in our nation right now? Are we doing enough as a church? Should should we be doing more? Should we be doing less? Are we we doing the right focus? Are Are we being faithless? Are we operating out of fear? Satan loves to bring up and remind us of our unbelief and our worry, of our insecurities, of our laziness, of our lust, our anger, our resentment, a whole host of things. And he doesn't have to fabricate any of it, does he? The human heart, as Calvin said, is a perpetual factory of idols. Satan doesn't need any help coming up with sins that I've committed. It's all true. But if tonight, if tonight you are trusting in Jesus Christ, if you are owning your sin and fleeing to your Savior, You do not need to deny a single charge against you. You need only point to Calvary, where the great exchange was made, where your debt was paid in full. Martin Luther once wrote this. It was thought for a while that this was apocryphal, that it was just made up for that Martin Luther movie, but there was a Luther scholar that traced it down to a source. He wrote this in one of his sermons, I believe. Luther said this. If we truly believe that Christ is our Savior, then we have a God of love. And to see God in faith is to look upon his friendly heart. So that when the devil throws your sins in his face and declares that you deserve death and hell, you tell him this. I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God, and where he is, there I shall be also. Close quote. Brothers and sisters, I wonder if some of you only seem to hear the incessant drumbeat, the incessant drone of Satan's accusation. You have a tender conscience and it's so often beleaguered and assaulted. By the grace of God, as one man said, we can retune the radio dials of your soul to a different station because this is what the Father says about you, believer in Jesus. He says of you, righteous, righteous forever. And that you are righteous with the righteousness of my son. Let us fight the accusations of Satan. Let us fight them with the doctrine of justification. That's the first thing I want for us to see by way of application. But then secondly and finally, let's use the doctrine of justification not only to silence Satan's accusing mouth, but let's also use the doctrine of justification to bolster our assurance. To bolster our assurance. Now, our obedience, our growth in holiness, that will bolster, bolster our assurance. And that's part of what it's supposed to do. And we're going to talk more about that in a few weeks when we get to the doctrine of sanctification. But the truth is, some of us look at ourselves and we look at our patterns of sin and obedience and we do not find very much to encourage us many weeks. And so we must know this. Our obedience is not the grounds of our security. Our obedience is not the grounds of our security. The finished work of Christ alone is the grounds of our eternal security. You know, the fact is you and I can be more or less holy. We can be more or less godly. We can be more or less Christ-like. We grow in grace, do we not? I, I trust that I am more godly today. I pray that I'm more godly today than I was when I was a new believer when I was age 11. I hope that I'm more godly today than I was when I was 19. And 20 years from now, 30 years from now, however long the Lord should be pleased to give, I hope that I am still yet more godly. I hope that I'm ever growing in godliness and Christ likeness and holiness by his grace. But you cannot, friends, you cannot be more justified and less justified. You either are justified or you're not. It does not wax or wane. Your state of justification, your state of being righteous before God does not increase or decrease based upon your moral performance of the week. You can't be less justified because you failed, nor can you be more justified because you obeyed. Your acceptance before a holy God doesn't rest on you. It rests on Jesus. Our security is based upon a finished work upon a final verdict that has already passed. Jesus died and he rose again and he bore your sin and as you trust in him, you are counted now and forever righteous in his sight and forever secure in him. I may have said this before and a number of folks here have also expressed that you know we love our Westminster Catechism, we love our Westminster Confession, we love the larger and shorter Catechism. We may not be Dutch, And so therefore we may not be much. But that first question and answer that comes to us out of the Reformed, the German Reformed, the Dutch Reformed tradition, that Heidelberg Catechism, is some of the most beautiful non-Holy Spirit-inspired words ever written. I love it when we use it in our worship services. You remember it? Christian, what is your only comfort in life and in death? That I, with body and soul, both in life and in death, am not my own but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood has fully satisfied for all my sin and has delivered me from the power of the devil and so preserves me that without the will of my Heavenly Father not a hair can fall from my head. Yes, and all things must be subservient to my salvation. And therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me sincerely willing and ready henceforth to live unto him. We belong to the one who has satisfied for our sin and in whom we are righteous now and forever. Nothing, nothing, nothing can ever change that believer in Jesus. You remember Westminster Shorter Catechism 33? Justification is an act of God's free grace wherein he pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight and only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. Nothing, not height, nor depth, nor angels, nor demons, nor things present, nor things to come, nor life, not even death, can separate us from the love of God, which is ours in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Hallelujah. What a Savior we have. Praise him tonight for the glorious doctrine of justification. Let's all pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. And we pray that you would seal it to our hearts this night. That you would bind it to our minds, bind it to our hearts and souls. Like that old covenant, like those frontlets before our eyes. That we would always see it. The truth of it dangling there when we rise and when we lie down. May we know, like Psalm 51 this morning, may we know anew the joy of your salvation as we remember again that he who knew no sin became sin for us in order that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Oh, how we bless you. In Jesus' name, amen.